SEC Debrief for Friday, June 16th, 2023. I'm your host, John Stolness, and coming up, a long-anticipated sit-down with Florida Governor Ron DeSantis as he makes his pitch to evangelical voters with CBN's David Brody. Donald Trump indicted for a second time. What's the fallout and what's next for the former president? And an in-depth conversation about one of the intelligence community's most widely used and widely abused information-gathering laws, FISA, with Patrick Eddington, Senior Fellow for the Cato Institute. All that's coming up on this edition of The Debrief. But just want to quickly remind you all to tell a friend about the podcast, tell a family member about the podcast. If you want to get the straight skinny on the week that was in Washington, D.C., this is the place to do it. We're at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever it is you get your podcasts. And uh, would love to hear from you uh, if you leave a a review and a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts as well. All right, everybody, let's get to the debrief. Up first on the debrief, DeSantis courts evangelical voters. Now, this week, CBN's chief political analyst sat down with very busy Republican governor of Florida and the presidential candidate closest to Donald Trump in the polls for the nomination. David sat down with DeSantis on Thursday and asked him why evangelicals should vote for him in 2024 rather than Donald Trump or any of the other candidates courting the evangelical vote. You know, there have been a lot of Republicans through the years, you know, who've said they would do things. But when it really gets tough, you know, are you able to stand your ground and do it? You know, right to life. We were able to deliver the heartbeat bill, which was a big, big deal. And, you know, while I appreciate what the former president has done in a variety of realms, he opposes that bill. He said it was, quote, harsh to protect an unborn child when there's a detectable heartbeat. I think that's humane to do. I think pro-lifers have been wanting to see, you know, good pro-life protections, whether it's Florida or Iowa under Kim Reynolds. Very important that you're able to get this stuff done. And of course, we have universal school choice in Florida. We got that done. Parents have a right to direct the education and upbringing of their kid, particularly for parents who want a religious education, they now have the ability, if they can't afford it, they have a scholarship. And yes, we have Christian schools, but we have Jewish day schools. We have things for all parents. That's made our state a lot stronger. So I don't think there's been anyone that's really been delivering on these key issues uh, more consistently than me. DeSantis also hitting Trump hard over his refusal to back Florida's six-week abortion ban law. Do you feel the former president's going soft then on abortion a little bit, especially in this area that you mentioned earlier? Well, I I think so. I mean, I was really surprised because he's a Florida resident. And I thought he would he would compliment the fact, you know, that we were able to do the heartbeat bill, which I pro-lifers have wanted for a long time. He never complimented, never said anything about it. Then he was asked about it and he said it was, quote, harsh. But, you know, these are these are children with detectable heartbeats. And I think to do that was very humane. And I think it was something that that every pro-lifer appreciates uh, that we were able to get that done. David and Governor DeSantis spoke about a whole lot more. You can see more of David's interview with the governor on our website, CBNNews.com. Number two, Trump indictment. For the second time this year, Donald Trump surrendered to authorities in the days following an indictment for alleged illegal activities, this time reporting to a courthouse in Miami on Tuesday and as he was officially arrested on these four charges 
in the classified documents saga. Under the Espionage Act, 31 counts of willful retention of national defense information, three counts of withholding or concealing documents in a federal investigation, two counts of making false statements about classified documents being turned over to authorities as well as an alleged scheme to hide possession of the documents, and one count of conspiracy to obstruct justice. Trump pled not guilty to all 37 counts, as expected. And then in the hours afterwards, at a speech at his Bedminster Golf Club in New Jersey, Trump sounded a defiant tone. Threatening me with 400 years in prison for possessing my own presidential papers, which just about every other president has done, is one of the most outrageous and vicious legal theories ever put forward in an American court of law. While Democrats have universally condemned the former president's actions, Republicans have been sounding off with different takes. On the campaign trail especially, the candidates' views are mixed. Nikki Haley, Asa Hutchinson, Mike Pence, and especially Chris Christie calling out his actions as wrong. However, Ron DeSantis, Vivek Ramaswamy, and others aiming their fire at the Biden administration, as well as the rationale behind the investigation rather than the allegations themselves. Certainly, that's been the rallying cry for most House Republicans and a lot of Senate Republicans as well. Meanwhile, there are still two more investigations surrounding the former president. Another one that's being led by Special Prosecutor Jack Smith concerning the president's involvement in the July 6th attacks on the Capitol, as well as allegations of election interference in the 2020 elections in Georgia. Reports indicate an indictment in the Georgia case could come in the next couple of weeks. And with Smith's January 6th investigation, speculation is charges in D.C. could happen sometime in August, something Republican Senator Lindsey Graham is adamant should not happen. I think politically it probably makes him stronger in the primary. If the special counsel indicts President Trump in Washington, D.C. for anything related to January 6th, that will be considered a major outrage by Republicans because you could convict any Republican of anything in Washington, D.C. Obviously, no shortage of opinions on this particular issue, uh, but uh, we will see how this plays out as the Republican race for the presidency. And we're about to get into debate season for the Republican nomination. That's all going to get started here in late August. And so uh, these it's entirely possible all four of these cases could have reached the indictment and arraignment stage by the time that first debate hits in August in Milwaukee. All right, number three, Blinken to China. The State Department says Secretary of State Antony Blinken will discuss the importance of maintaining open lines of communication to responsibly manage the relationship between the two superpowers. That's the language from the State Department. He'll leave later today and make a stop in the U.K. on the back end of his trip as he returns next week. Blinken was scheduled to make a trip to China a couple of months ago until the Chinese spy balloon floated above the United States, causing quite a kerfuffle across the U.S. and among lawmakers. Now, tensions between the two countries, they haven't exactly been getting smaller as time goes on since that... Uh, since that hot air balloon mess. This week, concerns over a Chinese spy location in Cuba has rattled nerves. No doubt an effort to spy on the United States and other Western nations by China. The Biden administration says they've known about this for years and that China upgraded their operation there in 2019. Secretary of State Blinken on that. Uh, it was our assessment that despite uh, awareness of the, the basing efforts and, and some attempts to address the challenge in the past administration, 
uh, we weren't making enough progress on this issue and we needed a more direct approach. And that's exactly what President Biden instructed uh, his team to do to address the challenge. And within months of getting that instruction from the President, that's exactly what we did. We've been executing on that approach quietly, carefully, but in our judgment with results uh, ever since. I can't get into every step that we've taken, uh, but the strategy begins with diplomacy. Uh, we've engaged governments that are considering uh, hosting PRC bases at high levels. We've exchanged information with them. Our experts assess that our diplomatic efforts have slowed down uh, this effort by the, uh, the PRC. It's something that we're very carefully monitoring. Earlier this month, a Chinese warship crossed in front of a U.S. destroyer in the Taiwan Strait, something the U.S. called an unsafe interaction. The two countries have been blaming each other for not holding military talks with each other, running the risk of potential accidents or incursions or misunderstandings just like this, and like one that happened back on May 26th, when a Chinese fighter jet carried out what the U.S. termed an unnecessarily aggressive maneuver near a U.S. military plane over the South China Sea in international airspace. So not only is there trade, not only is there um, is there uh, 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 the war in Ukraine to discuss, so many global issues between the U.S. and China, um, the uh, identity theft, uh, idea theft, property theft um, from, from Chinese officials, and now you've got all these different things going on with the Chinese spy balloon and the military incursions. It's a, a very delicate balancing act that Secretary of State Blinken will have to, will have to do while he's over in China this week weekend. Number four, going after Mayorkas. House Homeland Security Committee Chair Representative Mark Green with fellow committee Republicans held a press conference this week announcing an investigation into U.S. Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. This is Congressman Clay Higgins. Secretary Mayorkas's failures have brought generational trauma upon our country. The next generation will look back and say this what was America like before the Biden Mayorkas era? Those comments just before the hearing that was held on Wednesday. And House Republicans continued to hammer at Secretary Mayorkas. Democrats, like Congressman Benny Thompson, responded to that criticism. You don't have to look further than the title to know that the hearing is a sham. Calling a hearing and saying case closed before you've heard any testimony is not legitimate oversight. Many on the GOP side want to launch impeachment proceedings against Mayorkas, and I think uh, most see this as uh, kind of the, the first step towards moving down that road. Number five. Fed interest rate decision. The Federal Reserve, having raised interest rates at the fastest pace in four decades, announced Wednesday they will hold interest rates steady for now, the U.S. Central Bank said. After 10 straight increases, this is the first time the Fed has chosen not to raise rates since March of 2022. This is Jerome Powell. In light of how far we've come in tightening policy, the uncertain lags with which monetary policy affects the economy, and potential headwinds from credit tightening, Today, we decided to leave our policy interest rate unchanged and to continue to reduce our securities holdings. Looking ahead, nearly all committee participants view it as likely that some further rate increases will be appropriate this year to bring inflation down to 2% over time. Fears of a recession are slowing, given the Fed's decision. Previously, Fed officials were predicting that the unemployment rate would rise to 4.6%, 
from 3.5%, and some see a rise of more than 1% as the Fed trying to engineer a recession to bring down inflation. However, those same those same predictions now say that the unemployment rate will rise to only 4.1% from the current 3.7%, so certainly much less than 1%, leading some to believe that the Fed thinks that they can have a soft landing for the economy. They won't need to push the economy into a recession in order to get inflation back down to that 2% number that everybody wants. There are also four Forecasting a median forecast for gross domestic product moving up by 1% this year. It was previously forecast at 0.4%. So things looking a little better. However, as you heard Fed Chairman Powell say, they are not ruling out the possibility of raising more rates. And Deutsche Bank is still predicting a recession, noting that if all of the things that I just mentioned were to happen, if the unemployment rate were to only go up by, uh, by you know, four-tenths of a percent, same thing with the GDP, that it would be unprecedented in modern American history. Recent bank failures and still stubbornly high inflation are reasons the Fed could still go back to raising rates in July. There's no doubt that uh, some of the numbers at the grocery store, gas prices, a lot of things have come down from from their height. Certainly, we're in a much better position than we were a few months ago. However, they are still higher. There is still sticker shock going on at the grocery store when you go to buy a car, some of these other things that are out there that we that we buy every day, it's still hitting everyone's pocketbooks. And so inflation, a major topic. However, the signs do point to it coming down, and we will see what the Fed does over the next few months if they choose to raise interest rates again if inflation remains stubbornly high. Number six. Student loan repayment details. After more than three years, the federal government's pandemic-related suspension of student loan payments and interest is officially coming to an end. Student loan interest will resume starting on September 1st, and payments will be due starting in October. That's according to the Education Department. A spokesperson uh, confirmed in a statement to Politico, uh, and the the DOE says uh, they will notify borrowers Uh, well before the payments restart. Will the Supreme Court, here's the big question, is that we're still awaiting a Supreme Court ruling on whether or not the decision by the Biden administration to cancel up to ten dollars or $20,000 of debt for tens of millions of borrowers is constitutional. That decision could come later today. The the, the Supreme Court is expected to uh, release more decisions, more opinions, uh, and that is still one of the many decisions that are left in the balance. There's still a few more weeks before the Supreme Court uh, ends their session, and and they have about 20-some-odd cases that they still need to render decisions on. So by the time you hear this, the Supreme Court may have ruled on that. But uh, if not, the Supreme Court, it's it will decide whether or not the Biden administration can move forward with that plan to cancel debt. Uh, this certainly uh, an unpopular decision with those on the left. All right, number seven, Biden Burisma tapes. Now, I have seen some complaints by conservatives that the mainstream media is not covering the Biden Burisma revelations and spending so much time on Trump. And lest I fall into that same trap, here is an update on the investigation into the Biden family and allegations of pay-for-play deals with foreign nationals. This week, Republican Senator Grassley said a tip the FBI received in 2020 claimed a foreign national alleged to be an executive with the Ukrainian energy company Burisma paid Biden $5 million and has recordings of himself talking to Biden when he was vice president. Now, if true, that would be a bombshell. 
That would be a huge development in the GOP's pursuit of links between Biden potentially taking bribes from foreign nationals while vice president. However, to pump the brakes on this a little bit, multiple Republicans this week said they still have no proof the tapes exist and that the man who says he has them may not be reliable. Speaking about the recordings on Newsmax Tuesday, House Oversight Committee Chair James Comer, who has been as aggressive as anyone in pursuing this, said lawmakers, quote, don't know if they're legit or not, but we know that the foreign national claims he has them. Congressman Jim Jordan, Republican of Ohio, said on a, on a conservative talk show Wednesday, quote, we don't know for sure if these tapes exist. And then Senator Ron Johnson, Republican of Wisconsin, suggested on another conservative podcast or radio show that not only might the tapes not exist, but also that the foreign national who spoke to the FBI informant might lack credibility. So remember, while the FBI informant at the center of this document that some Republicans believe shows Biden may have accepted bribes, everyone agrees that that FBI informant is legitimate. However, he's just receiving this information from this Burisma executive, this claim that Biden has done these things and that he has audio tapes. We don't know the credibility of this other person. So you have multiple conservative Republicans urging everyone to, to just wait a bit before jumping to conclusions with this latest revelation until proof of the tape's existence is made known and everyone can hear what's on them. And no doubt about it, obviously, if a, vi if a then vice president, now sitting president, is on tape accepting bribes, that would be a monstrous scandal. And you can imagine that Democrats and Republicans would be pretty cl much closer to lockstep in in pursuing this issue than they currently are whereas and and the president of course is denying this at every turn so that is the latest on the biden burisma tapes and we will continue to keep an eye on this and see where it goes from there all right let's get into our deep dive for today on Tuesday, the Senate Judiciary Committee held a hearing on Section 702 of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, also known as FISA, a very powerful tool the government has used since it was passed, in, uh, passed into law in 2008 that allows them to surveil foreign individuals outside the U.S., and it requires phone companies and Internet service providers to give them email, phone, and text records of the individuals targeted. However, a number of senators during the hearing said they continue to be concerned that average Americans on the other end of these phone calls, emails, and texts are being caught up in this eavesdropping and that government agencies like the FBI, DOJ, and CIA have used their information improperly. Joining me to discuss this is Patrick Eddington, Senior Fellow in Homeland Security and Civil Liberties at the Cato Institute. Patrick, thank you so much for joining me today. My pleasure. So I briefly touched on just a second ago what Section 702 of FISA is, but can you fill in any gaps that I may have missed? Obviously, there's probably more to it than, than what I just mentioned. And how important this law is, how reliant these government agencies are on it? I think, you know, giving our viewers and our listeners, you know, a little bit of history here is actually quite important because this particular authority began life in sin, so to speak, um, two days after the 9-11 attacks. When he was director of the National Security Agency, General Michael Hayden ordered NSA to go ahead and begin monitoring uh, phone traffic uh, essentially originating from Afghanistan. And within two weeks of that, he had broadened it to any kind of communications between Afghanistan and the United States. 
Now, the problem with that, of course, is that anybody who had loved ones overseas who was an American citizen, uh, their communications were automatically going to get caught up on that. So um, what happened was this all began essentially as a top secret program that President then, then President George W. Bush uh, wound up essentially reauthorizing repeatedly over the next several years. Uh, and it wasn't until December of 2005 that the New York Times actually exposed this program. Uh, its code name was Stellar Wind. Uh, and that began at that point a two and a half year uh, battle in Congress to try to take this illegal and unconstitutional program and make it at least nominally legal. And that's how we got to the FISA Amendments Act, Section 702. To get uh, to your other, the other aspect of your question, um, I don't think there's any question that the FBI, NSA, the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, uh, the Secretary of State, all believe that this program is providing them with information that is of value. It's important to remember, though, that the original justification for this program was counterterrorism. And that's not really what they're doing right now. That's not how they're selling it. And at that, at that uh, judiciary, Senate Judiciary Committee hearing that you referenced, uh, a number of those folks from the federal government on the executive branch side really played up the utility of FISA Section 702 uh, in detecting fentanyl trafficking, right? So this is just another way that they've essentially kind of moved the goalpost about, you know, exactly how this program can or otherwise should be used. And then one final note, and I think this is critical. Uh, up until just this past year, this program had been so badly abused by the Federal Bureau of Investigation that they had conducted literally tens of millions, literally millions, I should say, of so-called backdoor query searches. And what I mean by that is when this data is collected uh, from the telecom companies, it goes into databases at NSA, and there that data is literally raw. So no names have been redacted, none of that kind of stuff. And so you had FBI agents going in there and conducting literally millions of searches without any kind of probable cause, and thus you know no, no warrant signed by a federal judge to do it. And that's really one of the key things that I and others believe absolutely have you know has to change here with respect to this law. And a lot of senators and members of the House of Representatives feel exactly the same way. Is the, I want to get into more of that in just a second, but is this law being used in the way it was intended? And in those circumstances, in terms of fighting terror, is it is it a, is it something that's useful? Like, is it is it something that these agencies do need and 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 need to figure out a way to use properly? So I, I think the critical thing to remember here is that the nine eleven attacks, which were mounted, of course, by Salafist terrorists and specifically Al Qaeda, those attacks did not succeed because our government didn't have the information. Our government had the information. They simply failed to put it all together. And I think the biggest problem with this particular program is the, the mass surveillance aspect of it is not only ultimately violative of Americans' rights uh, when there's no requirement that they get a warrant from a judge to search any kind of stored data on Americans, but it also just puts a lot of junk into the system. You know, you're talking, you know, terabytes and terabytes of data at the end of the day um, and storing all of that, m most of which is completely useless no real intelligence value at all, uh, just serves to basically gum up the works, you know, from an intelligence standpoint. And as a former intelligence officer, I will tell you that the very best in terms of law enforcement and intelligence work comes when you have very specific information. Uh, and there are plenty of examples of that. But to kind of get directly to your point, executive branch officials have claimed that this particular program has been successful in thwarting at least a few terrorist attacks on the United States. 
Uh, the Zazi case uh, is the one that the Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board talked about in their report uh, almost 10 years ago. But there just haven't been that many at this stage of the game that they've really remotely kind of referenced publicly. What they've talked about a lot more are these other uses that the uh, particular information has been put to. And I think, you know, when, when you hear some of these uh, folks from FBI, NSA and the like claim that if this authority goes away, you know, they'll essentially go dark. That's false. What they get right now, essentially, is compelled compliance from the tele, uh, telecom providers, AT&T, Verizon, and so on and so forth. But the reality is the president of the United States, if this particular law was to lapse, could sign a presidential finding in secret authorizing NSA and CIA to go ahead and simply tap into these systems covertly. Um, they could also authorize them to actively recruit people who, and the FBI to actively recruit people who work in these organizations. Alternatively, you know, they could work out a deal uh, because there's really nothing from a statutory standpoint that would prevent this. They could work out a deal to simply pay the telecom companies for this kind of information. So at the end of the day, you know, we need a probable cause based warrant requirement for them to access U.S. person data. I don't care if it's in physical form or digital form. And hopefully that is one of the uh, key changes that we'll see this year. We'll talk a little bit more about that. You know, some of the some of the oversight that senators and, and people like yourself are, are are seeking, because this isn't just from from my understanding, this is not simply a, a, a partisan issue. It seems as though members from both sides of the aisle have reservations about how this system is being used. What what kinds of things, if you can elaborate a little bit more on what kinds of things can be put in place in order to make this a more lawful, a more useful tool? Look, I mean the straightforward solution. Uh, if we're going to allow them to continue to collect this data, to me, there, there are two key things that have to change. First, if they want to access, and I mean, look at actual content, like of a text message or an email or anything else of an American citizen, they should be forced to abide by the Fourth Amendment, you know, which clearly states that no warrant shall issue except on the basis of probable cause. Um, and we're talking about, you know, one person, one warrant essentially here is how this really ought to be basically working. That's normally how it works in every other, you know, Title III domestic context. Um, and then I think the second thing that we have to have here is essentially uh, mandatory uh, database purges here. So in other words, if they collect information that's of absolutely no intelligence or, or uh, criminal law enforcement value, they shouldn't be allowed to sit on it, uh, uh, sit on it and maintain it indefinitely, um, you know, if it's U.S. person data. Right now, they assert the right to basically keep this stuff for five years. If there is no actual nexus to a hostile foreign power, uh, someone acting as, let's say, an agent of a foreign power or agent of a criminal uh, cartel, terrorist organization, that data should be purged. It, it just simply should not be there. And we would need back-end checks on that by an independent auditing authority. My preference would be the Government Accountability Office, Congress's watchdog. But it's possible that the Department of Justice Inspector General uh, and possibly NSA's Inspector General could do that. I'd prefer to have GAO do it, quite frankly. I'd feel more confident. But for me, those are the two minimum things. But I think what's really important to also kind of emphasize to, to anybody who's listening or watching this is this. Our problem goes way, way, way deeper than one authority here uh, in terms of FISA Section 702. When the Patriot Act was passed in late October 2001, this is, of course, a provision that has over 150 different uh, specific titles within it. 16 of those provisions had so-called sunset provisions or expiration dates. And today that number is zero. So there's literally an entire generation of Americans who have grown up essentially under this 
surveillance state under this, you know, virtually dystopian Orwellian, you know, kind of uh, country in that regard. And that has a fundamental warping effect, I believe, uh, on our society and certainly on the entire concept of the rule of law and individual rights. So we need to have a fundamental reexamination. You know, it's been almost 50 years since the late Senator Frank Church of Idaho led the mo- what was then the most comprehensive investigation of the U.S. intelligence community to date, the so-called Church Committee. And we're long overdue for something like that again, because the number of surveillance authorities that have been either directly passed by Congress or simply implemented by the executive branch unilaterally since the 9-11 attacks, I think most people would probably be kind of staggered if they if they knew how many of those were, were actually out there and running. Wow. Does the CIA, the FBI, and the DOJ, do they, do they admit that there has been some wrongdoing or that this law has been used, this, this, this thing that they have at their disposal has been used improperly? Reluctantly, and in every case, they claim that they have made changes. And, and I think, the, again, the important thing to remember on that particular point is that we have seen these violations take place virtually since the day this program was started. That's almost 15 years ago. And the problem that I have, and I think a lot of people uh, who work uh, constitutional law and privacy and civil liberties issues have, is that the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, which is supposed to basically be the, uh, the body here that prevents this kind of stuff from happening, has more often than not simply served as a rubber stamp. And when they have actually called out FBI and NSA uh, you know, for violating their court orders, nobody has been sanctioned and nobody has lost their job. Uh, and that's that's a complete breakdown of the rule of law as far as I'm concerned. And it, it's basically telling the agencies, you can come before the court, you can lie to us, we'll just slap you on the wrist or we'll just be, use harsh language with you, but you, you can go on with business as usual. And that's why we need a congressional intervention here. And I think, as you indicated, there are folks on both sides of the aisle who, who do recognize that. And just to kind of you know piggyback on that point, do you get the sense that the motivation in Congress is there? It's hard to get these guys to agree on much of anything with, with the polarized nature of Republicans and Democrats in Congress. <laughs> but do you anticipate Congress coming together with some new rules, some, some new oversight? Or do you anticipate this, this program sunsetting? I, I see no possibility whatsoever that this program goes away. Um, you know, you have too many surveillance hawks, too many national security hawks, people like Tom Cotton of Arkansas uh, and others um, who really absolutely want to see this program continue. But even they, I think at this point, will admit that the level of abuse, the frequency of it, the scope of it has been such that a bona fide congressional uh, intervention here to, to at least require a probable cause-based warrant to access U.S. person data is the bare minimum that ought to happen. You know, I've been telling every office on the Hill that I've been meeting with over the course of the last six months that if, if you just reform 702 and you just check the box and you think that's it, you're going to be very sorely mistaken because a lot more of these kinds of scandals are absolutely going to surface as we go forward. And that's why a much more forensic examination of this is in order. And I want to give credit to Representative Nancy Mace, Republican of South Carolina, and Representative Jamie Raskin, Democrat of Maryland. Uh, Early last year, uh, they asked the GAO, the Government Accountability Office, Congress's watchdog, to begin investigating the FBI's misuse of these things called assessments. Uh, And these are, of course, uh, essentially a tool that the FBI can use to open an investigation on you, me, and organization with absolutely no criminal predicate whatsoever. 
Uh, and here at Cato, as part of our Free of Information Act program, we discovered a couple of years ago that the FBI had targeted Concerned Women for America, a, a venerable, highly respected pro-life organization, uh, essentially for a so-called charity assessment. Uh, trying to basically, you know, find out whether or not there was any kind of financial wrongdoing. And they opened that particular assessment with absolutely no criminal predicate. Nobody had come to the FBI to say that anybody at, at Concerned Women for America was engaged in any kind of financial impropriety. And it's those kinds of abuses, I think, that our viewers and listeners really ought to be very, very concerned about because the problem is is much more widespread. And I should say that Cato has been in court for years now uh, litigating Freedom of Information Act lawsuits to try to pry open as much of this kind of information as possible so people get a much better sense of just exactly how big the problem is. Last question for you. Uh, is perhaps reading the writing on the wall, do these agencies, are, are they taking any actions on their own that move the ball down the field at all to try to uh, mitigate Congress's involvement or to try to police themselves in, in a way that they haven't thus far? The FBI has claimed that they have made additional changes to how their databases operate in order to make it far, far more difficult or uh, uh, create a, an additional series of internal hurdles for folks to access this stuff, uh, you know, without actual real good cause. And that's all well and good. Um, but they said that before. I mean, in fact, they said that every single time that the FISA court called them out for previous violations. So, again, this is where we need absolute bona fide external congressional oversight and an actual change to the statute to ensure that it is truly compliant with the Fourth Amendment, because right now, for all intents and purposes, it truly is not. Well, it's something we'll be keeping an eye on over these next few months because it, it does – this program is set to go away at the end of the year unless it's reauthorized or unless uh, Congress intervenes. So we'll see what happens uh, as both sides of the aisle, lawmakers on both sides of the aisle and in the House and Senate. I know there's a House working group uh, that's looking at this situation as well. So we'll see how it all shakes out. And we'll be making sure to follow everything you're doing, Patrick, over at the Cato Institute. If people want to read your writing or anything that you're working on, how do they do that? Simply go to the Cato website, www.cato.org. Uh, click on the link that says Experts. You can scroll down alphabetically. You'll find me there. You can just click on the link. It'll take you to my bio page, which includes everything in terms of what I've written, multimedia, the whole nine yards. Great. Well, Patrick, I really appreciate your time. Thank you for joining me today. My pleasure. All right. Well, let's wrap things up here on the debrief with the closer. The annual congressional baseball game was on Wednesday of this week, and for the third straight year, Republicans destroyed the Democrats, this time 16 to 6. Congressman Greg Stubbe, Republican of Florida, took the mound as the starting pitcher for the GOP, and he did so just a few months after breaking his pelvis, puncturing a lung, and suffering a concussion when he fell from a ladder at his home in Florida. The Republican tossed four innings and gave up five runs for the win. He also blasted the hardest hit ball of the evening, a run scoring double in the third inning that made it to the warning track and bounced over the fence for a ground rule double at Nationals Park. Remember, back in September of 2021, Stubbe became the first congressional baseball player in more than 40 years to hit an out of the park home run in the game that's played every year at Nats Park. Now, earlier in the week, they also played the congressional soccer match, won by Republicans 4-2. to two. Republicans on the winning end of these uh, sporting events this year. My favorite story from this game, during their celebration, 
Congressman Dan Crenshaw, a former Navy SEAL who lost his eye in 2012 when he was injured by an IED, he normally wears an eye patch, pulled out his prosthetic eye in protest of the performance of the officials. He says the refs, they have two eyeballs, but they don't use them. So I'm just going to give them one of mine. You listen to the audio. Well, you know, the refs, are, they, they have two eyeballs, but they don't use them. So I'm just going to get one of mine. There we go. You can hear the glass eye clink in the trophy the team was awarded. Just just bonkers. Uh, they were protesting a goal that was wiped out when referees decided the Republican team was offside. So talk about making your point. Congressman Crenshaw absolutely made his point there. All right, everyone, that's going to do it for this edition of the DC Debrief. Uh, my thank you once again to Patrick Eddington for joining me here on the podcast. I want to remind you all to please continue to tell neighbors and friends and family about the DC Debrief. We hope you are enjoying this podcast. If you are, leave a five-star rating at Apple Podcasts and leave a review. Let me know what you think of the show anything you'd like to see done differently or just an attaboy i'm always taking attaboy so uh, those are welcome at the apple podcasts and of course we're on spotify wherever it is that you get your podcasts thank you everyone for tuning in and we'll talk to you next week right here on the dc debrief